I have a guest today who is an author, and his book I found to be revolutionary. And the reason I say that is because um, the topic that he covered is one of those things where myself and a bunch of other people had a bunch of like disjointed feelings and theories and kind of ideas on how to explain something. And this gentleman brought it all together under one roof into a book and just put it together in such a clear, concise way. And I'm excited to share this with you today. Joining me on the phone from Colorado Springs, Colorado, by way of Shreveport, Louisiana, This gentleman wrote a book called Understanding the Book of Job. Oh boy, powder keg coming your way. Separating what is true from what is truth. And uh, if, uh, I'll get into that. Joining me on the phone from Windlight Ministries, Tom Tompkins. Tom, welcome to Dominion Fire 360. How you doing, man? I'm great, Million. Thank you so much for the opportunity to do this. This is a tremendous privilege. I'm real excited because this is one of those topics where, uh, you know, there's 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 certain handful of topics that just get people going, and Job is one of them, you know. And um, I am of the opinion that a lot of stuff in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, you know, in our Western culture, we tend to be a little superficial, unfortunately, and we don't always get the full story of things. Um, I am in agreement with you that Job is probably one of, if not the most misinterpreted book of the Bible and misapplied without a doubt, especially that we come from a background of healing and healing ministry and people justify having sickness because of Job. So it's it's a big mess we got here. And this is why I brought you on here. I want you to help cut through the mess. So um, book of Job from the top, give me a full rundown. What do you got, my friend? Well, the, the thing we first need to look at is that Job was completely opposite of anybody we really know today or or how anybody can be today as far as being a born-again believer. Job did not have a Bible to read. When things started to go bad in his life and go in a negative direction, it's not like he could flip over to John chapter 10, verse 10, and say, oh, it says the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. It doesn't say God comes to steal, kill, and destroy, or God allows the devil to steal, kill, and destroy. So that's a big difference. Job was not born again because he did not have a Savior. He did not have a revelation of the devil. You know, if you really study out the Old Testament, the devil is mentioned very few times, and most of those times are in the book of Job. I think 17 of those times, if I remember correctly, are in the book of Job, but is never by Job himself. So today we have that revelation that he didn't have. We have a Bible. We can be born again. And we have a covenant where we have authority over the devil. That's one big difference that we have Job did not have authority over the devil. That's why he didn't know about the devil. And, of course, Adam and Eve are the ones who gave that opportunity, and I'm sure we'll probably touch on that a little bit more thoroughly later in the broadcast. But when it's all said and done, everybody says, well, God gave Job, or excuse me, gave Satan permission to attack Job. Actually, it was Adam who gave Satan permission to attack Job. So when it was all said and done, and and just in a quick overview here, Job reacted like just about anybody else would when they didn't know that there was more than one power in the universe. As far as Job knew, God was the only power in the universe. That's why he said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. He didn't know any better. But later on in uh, Job chapter 34, verse 35, and there was additional things that Job said about God that were incorrect. And this verse 35 in chapter 34 applies to that. It says, Job has spoken without knowledge. His words were without wisdom. And then in Job chapter 38, God begins dealing with Job directly and saying, Hey, Job, 
Why are you blaming me for your problems? Why are you saying if you had the chance to get in my face, you would come and do that, and I would say nothing in return? And basically, Job was given the chance by God to get in God's face, because he literally said, I would get in God's face, I would tell him what I had to say, and he would have nothing to say in return. And Job eventually humbles himself and says, oops, I guess I really didn't know what I was talking about, and ultimately repents. And the interesting thing is that when he repents, it gives God the ability to bless him with twice what he lost. And, of course, Job's view of things, I, I really, in my way of thinking, which is probably a little different than most, just kind of almost comical in a way, I hope there's a video library in heaven of not only people who have blamed God for their problems and believed that God controls everything and basically attributed these terrible atrocities in the world to God, but also people who maybe run into Job and he gets to talk to him and they say, well, Job, so what really happened? And the first thing Job might say to him in heaven is, well, I was wrong in everything that I said about God up until Job chapter 42, verse 3. You know, God didn't take anything from me. He, you know, another verse that's, that's just terribly misused, and Job didn't know what he was talking about, is Job 2.10. When Job speaks to his wife in reference, when she said, just curse God and die, he says, how can we not expect good from God, but not also expect evil? And he just didn't know what he was talking about. And I really think that if we could talk to Job right now, he'd say, yeah, I was completely inaccurate, you know, wrong in what I said in that statement. Let me ask you this now, and this is something I always come back to, is that, you know, our Bible's been through about, we're about four languages in now through translations and influence and uh, different kind of schools of thought through Greek and Hebrew, so on and so forth. Um, Being that Job is widely considered the most ancient of all the texts out there, how much has been really lost in translation as far as like Hebrew thinking, Hebrew sayings, and uh, just kind of how the original wording would have happened at the time? The simplest way I can answer that question is that it is this is why we have come to the point with the modern view of God in, in most churches and most groups of Christians, as simple as looking at one verse, Job chapter 1, verse 8. Most translations and interpretations that we have available today say something to the tune of, have you considered my servant Job? It appears that God saw Satan coming to him and said, hey, Satan, how about attacking Job? Would you like to go after him? The original Hebrew wording of Job chapter 1, verse 8 is actually, why have you set your heart upon my servant Job? That's what God actually said. He wasn't actually asking Satan if he wanted to go after Job. He was saying, Satan, I know what you're up to, and I want you to know that I know what you're up to. You know, and that right there is that one word, the why makes the, a world of difference in basically this whole thing. Because if in the original, if it's understood that, why are you attacking him? Or I know what you're up to, as opposed to, hey, why don't you just go after him and see what happens? You know, that one word makes a tremendous amount of difference, no? It does make a tremendous difference. And you know, there's another verse that it's not really the interpretation of, of the wording, the way it's interpreted, but it's just our personal interpretation. It's something God showed me uh, after the fact, quite a few years, probably just in the last few months, uh, from another verse that I think really shed some light on what was really going on here. And this is not in my book. If I, I would like to eventually write a second edition titled Continuing to Understand the Book of Job. Uh, if time allows for that, I will eventually do that. But what I'm about to say is not in the book. 
but I think it bears saying. And so the first verse where people really start to get kind of turned upside down in their view of what happened and it messes up their view of God is Job chapter 1, verse 8, which we just addressed. But Job chapter 1, verse 11 is something that I think really needs some light shed upon it. Because it's what Satan said to God, and it reveals what Satan was really doing. And let me just lay a, a little foundation before I actually go into that. Anytime Satan does something to somebody, whether we read about it in the Bible, whether it was a group of people or a person or we ourselves or someone we know today, he's really not after us. He's ultimately after God because God is the one who stripped him of his power because of his poor decision-making, obviously. So when Satan came before God, his intention, his plan A, so to speak, was not, I'm going after Job. He wanted to tempt God himself to go after Job. And we see this in Job chapter 1, verse 11, where Satan says, Does Job fear God for naught? Touch everything that he has, and surely he will curse you to your face. So what Satan was doing is he was trying to tempt God to attack Job and destroy Job's life so that Satan could literally put his finger in God's face and say, Ha, 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 look at what I made you do. And of course, God was way ahead of him on that and didn't give into that temptation. But it just shows how stupid Satan is that he would even attempt to do such a thing. But it also reveals what really goes on. It's not God allowing the Satan to do anything or allowing the devil to do anything. It's Satan wanting to go after God, and since he can't get to God directly, he has to come at God through a different source, God's loved ones, which is us, or in that particular case, was Job. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, there's another element to that, which uh, we'll we'll get into this more later on because I, I kind of want to stay in this area. But there's that um, there's a verse where uh, God is addressing Satan and basically says, "You try to incite him against me." Um, mm-hmm. And the deal is, is that that point of trying is not in there. It just says, "You did incite him against me." Another one of those translation things. And here is that question of sovereignty that always comes up. And this, I think, is the linchpin to all this. And we're, we'll get into this. But then the question is, if Satan has the power to incite God, then that's really not sovereign, is it? Exactly. the The thing that I think we need to understand, and of course, you know, like you say, we'll get into this a little more in detail later on. So I'm going to save quite a bit for that. But the primary thing. It is a major issue with the word sovereign, is that if I was to walk up to somebody on the street, let's just say we did an interview or a radio interview or a phone interview or a video interview with a number of people and said, I have a question for you. Tell me what the definition, the true meaning of the word sovereign is. Well, if most people follow the logic of the church today, they would say, well, it means God is in control. Well, here's an interesting thing to consider. The first definition of the word sovereign, and there's multiple definitions that go with this, but the first definition is one who exercises authority in a limited sphere. That's fascinating, isn't it? In a limited sphere, okay. Yes. So what they're basically saying when they say God is sovereign is they're saying he exercises authority to a degree, but not completely, which is really true. It isn't that God doesn't have the power to control everything. It's that he chose to not exercise that power. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, he gave dominion over all the earth. That's what it actually says, over all the earth, in Genesis 1, 26, to man. So when God created man in his likeness, there was an interesting thing to consider about that. 
in order to be created in God's likeness, you have to be like God, which means you have to have a free will, which means God doesn't, nobody controls what God does, and so God doesn't control what we do. I hope that makes sense. But when God made the decision, you know, stepping back just a little bit here, it's not inaccurate to say God is sovereign. If you look at the dictionary definition, which, of course, as we've already touched on, one who exercises authority in a limited sphere, uh, one who is excellent, one who is highest in rank, one who doesn't take orders from anybody. That does define God perfectly, but it doesn't mean he controls everything. So God sovereignly made the decision. Nobody made the decision for him. He independently made this decision to put man in control of the earth. So this is why in Genesis chapter 3, when Satan wanted power, over the earth. He was jealous because he saw what man had, something that he did not have. He didn't go to God to get the power he sought because God didn't have the power. He went to man because he knew man had the power. That's where he got the power. He couldn't get it from God since God didn't have it. So essentially, it all comes back to the same same thing that I've said. God is sovereign. There's nothing wrong with saying that, but the word sovereign does not mean in control of everything that happens. You know, and that's another thing, too. You, One of the most cliche lines in all of Christianity is, oh, you know, God is in control. But it only seems to get brought up when something goes wrong or something bad happens or somebody dies or, you know, it's it's never when, you know, something good happens. Uh, okay, I hit the lottery. Well, God was in control. He wanted you to have it. That that never happens. <laughs> you know, it's always when it's always there. there seems to be and this is just my personal take on it is, you know, Satan has committed the cosmic version of identity theft. He has pulled off one of the greatest hoaxes of all time by basically blaming God for everything and getting people to fight for that stance. I find that just totally nuts, and that's a perfect example of that. You know, there's all these people getting murdered all around the world while God is in control, but, you know, I thought God brought us life and not death. You know, it's like stuff like that just kind of makes me nuts, and I'm sure you deal with it a lot more than I do. Yes, that's that's absolutely correct. In fact, it's it's a very rare to bring the topic up with people who disagree with what we're talking about today and have them change their mind about it. And it's so ingrained because, well, first of all, it doesn't take any faith to believe anything that goes along with God controls everything. When things go bad, we feel it in our five senses. It's all about our feelings and emotions. And so there's no faith involved. And so people have established this belief based on the five senses. They haven't based on what Scripture really says until after the fact. It's kind of like basically waiting until something bad happens until we go to the Bible. Instead of digging into the Bible to the best of our ability and developing an opinion and a view of God based on Scripture before something bad happens, and I know that's not necessarily the easiest thing to do, but to some extent we can do it and continue to build upon it. But instead, what people have done, and I know I know I've been guilty of this in the past as, as well, is we wait until something bad happens, and then we go and try and find something in Scripture to back up why it happened. And my example for this is, let's just say, one day somebody goes to work and they lose their job. Well, on the way home, after they've been fired from their job, they have a car accident, they total their car, they have to go to the hospital, and then at the end of that time, when they get home from the hospital, they find out that their house is burned to the ground. And they're going to say, God, what is going on here? And whether they find it themselves or whether somebody recommends it to them, they're most likely, if they go to the Bible to try and figure out what's going on here, they're going to wind up in the book of Job. And they're going to filter 
the Bible through their experiences as opposed to filtering their experiences through the Bible, if that makes sense. And I believe that's where a lot of this comes from and why it's so ingrained in the majority of people's theology is because it's based solely on natural experiences and then going to the Bible as opposed to the Bible coming in first and saying, let me filter my natural experiences through what the Bible says and through the true nature of God. And and here's a great way to put it, through the examples that Jesus set on the earth. You know, if you really think about it, Jesus himself said that he only did what he saw God doing. I only do what I see my Father doing. And he was the express image of God. So here's the thing. Did he ever cause or allow bad things to happen in people's lives? Did he ever put sickness on anybody? Did he ever say, hey, Satan, what about, you know, have you considered my servant, you know, whoever? Have you considered my disciples, for example? He never did anything like that because he never saw his father do anything like that. Okay, let me challenge you now. Let me take the other side of this, and I'll throw something at you, and you could kind of break it down for me. When I've thrown that out there to people, the one, the one that always comes up is, well, he allowed Lazarus to die. Lazarus was sick. He allowed him to die for whatever reason, because then he could go raise him up. Work that one out for me. Well, we have to look at how death came into the world in the first place. And and I believe it's in the book of John. I don't have the reference right now. But it says that death entered into the world through one man's sin. So it was Adam who allowed death to enter into the world in the first place. It wasn't God. God didn't allow or cause that to happen. We have to keep in mind that, again, it was man who had control and authority and power over the earth. That's the definition of dominion. If you have dominion over something, you know, the word dominion is the word we get dominate from or dominance. And so if a sports team is dominating their league, they're winning all the games or the vast majority of the games. They have dominion. They have control and power. They're the powerhouse, so to speak. So man was the powerhouse in the world based on God's decision. So it was man who brought death into the world, and when it was all said and done, anytime somebody dies, it is never God's plan, it is never his will, it is all the result of the poor decision-making of man. And I, I hope that makes sense, and I hope that's simple enough to understand. All right, now I'm going to kind of throw some other questions out at you. Now, these are some of the common things I hear, and I'll just throw it out there so you can address them as well. Uh, you touched on this a little bit, but for example, people say that God allowed Satan to attack, or he uses Satan as a pawn. That's the other thing I hear a lot of times. But then I thought that light and dark don't fellowship together. So where am I? Where should I fall on this? Well, that's absolutely correct. I mean, you, you can't have one with the other. When darkness is present, light is not present. When light is present, darkness has been dispelled by the light. And so, basically, what it comes down to is, you know, one kingdom cannot fight against itself. And again, that's something we see in Scripture. Um, so God is not going to come against somebody with another power and say, well, I'm just allowing this to happen. Hopefully I'm putting this out there correctly. That's sometimes a little more challenging to make this simple to understand than than others, so I hope this is easy to understand. But if God were allowing, let's say, bad things to happen, I'll kind of back up a little bit here. I have experience with uh, working with the fire department back in Shreveport, Louisiana, so this is a real good example for me to use. So what happens when you have a fire truck driving down the road, you have three people in the truck. You have the driver, and the driver's seat, obviously. Uh, the passenger seat in the front is the captain, 
and the back seat is called the back end man. And so let's just say that the fire truck was driving down the road, and the captain would represent God, and the back end man would represent Satan. Okay. If they pulled up to a house and the captain told the back end man, go and start that house on fire, we'll make the block, we'll come back and put it out, and I'll make myself look really good because I'll be the one with the, with the hose in my hand or the nozzle in my hand. I will go and put the fire out. If that really happened, it would be easy to say, well, the captain allowed the back end man to go and start that house on fire. Why did he allow that to happen? Well, this kind of leads us into something you're probably going to ask eventually, I assume, um, but it's probably good to get into regardless. A lot of people will say, well, God allows these things to happen for his glory or so we can grow in our faith or for whatever reason. Well, if there was evidence to prove that the captain told the back-end man to go and start that fire, thus allowing it to happen so that he could put it out and get the glory, it would be looked at as a crime. And so basically what we're doing is we're accusing God of being a criminal when we say, well, he allowed this to happen. And of course, there's multiple directions we can go with this. I'll see where you want to go from here. But there's obviously a lot of different reasons, or maybe we should say excuses that people come up with to say, well, this is why God allowed this to happen. And of course, that's just, if you understand God's true nature of love, what love really is, it becomes very difficult to say such things and to believe such things. At least that's the way I see it. Yes. Now, since you bring that up, I've been kind of wanting to get onto this topic, and uh, we we we're, time is flying by today, and uh, I'm I'm loving this. And let's get right into this. You know, the God is in control is the um, the big thing here. I think that what it all comes down to is a misapplication of what sovereignty means. And this is why I wanted you, really wanted you on the show today to start going at this, because I think that if we get a hold of what the true meaning of sovereignty is and how it functions, then it's going to, everything else is going to crumble that is not correct. Um, So in this case now, sovereignty what is it? How does it work? And I'll, I'll throw it in there. I would pretty much guarantee that the biggest influence, mainly in our Western church, comes from, you know, the early settlers, the, uh, you know, sinners in the hands of an angry God, and back to John Calvin about God's in control of everything. That's been so influential in our church, and that continues to proceed today. So give me the full rundown of sovereignty, what it means, definition, and whatever people are thinking incorrectly, let's get it out now. What do you got? Okay. Well, the first thing to look at is that the New International Version of the Bible, and I don't mean to put that version down because it does have some really good points. It makes things simpler to understand in some cases. I like some of the way the verses are worded. However, it just goes with the question you asked. The NIV, or the New International Version, is not a, is a, an interpretation of the Bible, not a translation. So what that means is that the NIV is worded in such a way that basically it comes across as this is what man thinks the Bible should have said. That's what an interpretation is, as opposed to like the King James translation. It was translated into English based on Greek and Hebrew for the most part, and there was still some interpretation that was lost, some true meaning of of different things, like we looked at with Job chapter 1, verse 8. But the issue with the NIV is that it's basically worded in such a way as man saying, this is what I think it should have said. And that's why some verses are omitted. There are verses that are just flat left out. And even though at the bottom of some of the pages it will say, well, this verse was omitted, 
why was it omitted? Why do you think that should have been done? That's what I'd ask the, the writers of the NIV who originally came up with this. Well, along the way, the word sovereign replaced what in the, at least the King James and other versions, translations and interpretations of the Bible was, was uh, Lord God or O oh Lord God. So where you see the word sovereign in the NIV is where in the King James you would say Lord God. Well, obviously, when you think of, of Lord God, you don't think, well, that means God controls everything. But somehow we've come up with this belief that the word sovereign does mean God controls everything. And as we touched on a little bit earlier, the true dictionary definition of the word sovereign is one who exercises authority in a limited Okay, it doesn't say one who controls everything, period. It means highest in rank, highest in order, supreme, independent. Okay, that describes God perfectly. But I think we need to focus mainly on the fact that it's saying one who exercises authority in a limited sphere. Well, why is it limited? Because, again, God made that choice that we discussed earlier to put man in control of the earth. So, along the way, Somebody, I don't know for sure who, I don't know if, you know, it came from some of these Calvinistic beliefs or, or where it actually came from. I haven't researched it to that point, but this belief came up that the word sovereign means God controls everything that happens. Okay. The thing we need to look at with that is that if God does control everything that happens, and that's really what the word sovereign means, then we need to know what is God's true nature. Look at what he did in the Bible. Okay, Jesus is the perfect example, and again, I touched on this a little bit earlier, but Jesus never took control and took charge of everything that happens. He healed those who wanted him to minister to them. He healed those who literally came to him and said, Jesus, you know, would you minister to me or minister to this person? Or just speak the word and my servant will be healed, that kind of thing. In his own hometown, it says that Jesus could only heal a few sick folk. That's it, because of their unbelief. Jesus did not come in and independently take over. He didn't sovereignly take over and say, well, even though these people in this town, for the most part, don't want me to minister to them, I'm going to do it anyway. He didn't do that. So when we look at the word sovereign and compare it to, let's just say, the life of Jesus, Jesus did not come with an iron fist and rule and reign for 33 years, especially those three years of his ministry. He gave people a choice, he loved them, and he never forced his will upon them. And so, if you want to take the approach of God is in control with the word sovereign, which is, again, the popular belief, but most people have never taken the time to say, well, let me crack the dictionary and see what this word actually means— Jesus did not sovereignly control everything. He just let people make a choice. He did that out of love because he didn't want to force himself or his will upon anybody. And so, in essence, I believe that reveals the truth about what being sovereign is all about. Let me just throw this in there as well. Since Jesus was the express image of the Father, and we do know that God is sovereign based on the definition of the word sovereign, Jesus, out of his sovereign ability, out of being sovereign, did not force anything upon anybody at any time. My teacher, I trained under uh, Curry Blake from John G. Lake Ministries, and uh, he touched on this in a, a couple lessons. And one thing that he said one time really hammered it home for me. He says, if God is in control or if God were in control, all the stuff around us would have been done already. 
And that's ba- that's basically the way I look at it. If God is in control, why are we still, you know, kind of mucking around with all this stuff? Why is this not all done? Why is the world not perfect? If God were in control, why would it not be exactly perfect the way he wanted it? There's something not lining up there for me, you know? Right. Well, and I've also often told people, if God did control everything that happens, we would literally have heaven on earth. Think about that model prayer, what has come to be known as the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. Um, I believe it's, Mark, it's Matthew or Mark chapter 6. I think it's Matthew chapter 6. But anyway, the Lord's Prayer, as they call it, that's a whole different subject, because that's not what he called it. That's not just that it's the model prayer that Jesus prayed. But during this model prayer, Jesus said that we should pray, God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, what's going on in heaven? Nobody is sick. Nobody is suffering. Satan is not being allowed or to attack anybody or asked if he wants to attack anybody. So when we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we need to understand, well, what exactly does that mean? And when we look at the model of what heaven represents, what's going on in heaven and what's not going on in heaven, that shows us what would be happening on the earth if God controlled everything that happens. Wow. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's a big mess we got going on here, and and like you said earlier, it's so ingrained in a lot of things that people believe, and I think it's uh, it, it's it's hard to really be mad at people because you know you can't blame a blind man for stepping on your toe, and it, sure. and I think the problem is is that people get to the point where they think if they are if they question any of their beliefs that they're somehow blaspheming or they're somehow going against God and need to repent but you know it says seek first the kingdom of God and you can't seek anyone or get to know anyone without at least asking a question here and there so I, I think that when people start questioning this like you said I think it um, it makes their faith uncomfortable because now you got responsibility if you're the one in charge now you got some responsibilities that maybe you may not want um, and then there's all this uh, just so many years of stuff that you have to kind of go through and clear out. And it just becomes a big mess. And I think this is why it makes people so uncomfortable. I think they're just happy with just let God run everything. And whether it goes good or bad, I'll just attribute it to him and I'll just get on with my life. <laughs> and that just seems to be how it goes. Um, so as we're, uh, we're we're getting ready to wrap up real soon, and our time has flown by today, and I'm, I'm just loving this conversation. Um, if you had to say the absolute biggest Biggest misconception about the book of Job. Whoa. That God allowed Satan to attack Job. That, well, let me back up on that. That Job was accurate in his view of God. That's really what I would say. Okay. The subtitle of my book, Separating What is True from What is Truth, is based on the words of Job 121, where Job said, The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Well, there's two things to look at with that. First of all, if you go back, Job was not speaking about events to come. He was speaking based on what had already happened to him. So if you go back and you research Job chapter 1, verse 1 through Job chapter 1, verse 20, you will find out that God never took anything. And so, and there's other things that Job said, but for the sake of time, I won't go into those. But the main thing we look at is that as Job went on, he had three friends that came along and, and really were not very good at being his friends because they basically discouraged him and told him, this is all your fault. It's because of some great sin in your life that God did this to you. And it made Job angry. He got angry at God, as we talked about earlier, and said, I'd love to get in God's face and tell him a thing or two, and if I did, he'd have nothing to say in return. Well, eventually in Job chapter 34, verse 35, we see 
it says, Job has spoken without knowledge, and his words were without wisdom. And it actually goes on for the rest of that chapter to talk about how Job was angry with God, he was rebellious, he multiplied his words against God. That's Job chapter 34, verse 37. And eventually, God came and corrected the situation, but obviously, the worst issue there is that, as I like to put it, Basically, people tend to identify more with Job and the words of Job than they do with the words of Jesus, and it goes right back to what we talked about earlier. What was the representation that Jesus gave of God when you compare the representation of what Job gave to God? You know, I'll throw something else on top of that, is I know several people that have been suffering for years and years, and I mean literally like decades, and they say, oh, I'm just Job, I'm just Job. Well, I recall Job only having to go through this for a period of time. It wasn't his whole life. And when it was all over, he got double what he started with. And you can't claim you're going to be Job if, A, it doesn't end, and if, B, you don't come out better than you started. You can't really play the Job card. And I think that's uh, an issue that people have. And what I also want to say is um, something you pointed out, which I heard in one of your YouTube videos, and, and this has stuck with me ever since. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. God never said that. That was Job who said that. And it's like, this was the guy who said he's speaking without wisdom. This, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> but everybody says, well, the Lord giveth. You're quoting a guy who didn't know what he was talking about. <laughs> and I just find that, and it's that superficial. Nobody really pays attention to that. Right. And again, it goes back to that lack of faith. It's, it's putting putting our beliefs in in something that makes sense to the five senses. Well, I read this. This is what Job said. Well, so what if it's what Job said? Yeah, that's right. It's not what God said. I have a little graphic, in fact, out on Facebook that, that has the, the words from Job 121. It says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Um, and I think it says something to the tune of those words did not come out of my mouth, God. You know, and that's really true. I think if we would just sit back and think, well, wait a second, that's really true. And another thing to consider is that Job's words were not inspired of God. They were inspired of his own flesh of his lack of understanding, of his lack of knowledge, and his lack of wisdom. Wow. So now, if people want to start digging into this more, you have a whole book called Understanding the Book of Job, Separating What is True from What is Truth. Now, where can people find this book, and how can they get a copy? It is available through any online book retailer, but the most popular outlet is Amazon.com, and so you can research that, uh, Understanding the Book of Job, under my name, Tom Tompkins. Uh, it is available in paperback and Kindle format, so trying to make that as easy to get into the hands of people as possible. Awesome. And listeners, we got Tom Tompkins from Winlight Ministries, author of the book that you just heard about by way of uh, Colorado Springs, by way of Shreveport, Louisiana. And Tom, if people would like to maybe ask you a question, maybe challenge you a little bit, throw some stuff out there, have a discussion, debate, whatever, how can they find you? You got email, website, what's your contact info? The easiest way to do that is through Facebook. And actually, we have a, a special page dedicated to the book. Just look up Understanding the Book of Job and that will come up. Uh, we're working on getting a new website together. It's not quite ready yet, but I do have an email address as well, which is just understandingjob at gmail.com, and those are the best outlets to get in touch with me through right now, and we will hopefully in the next week or two have a new website up and running, and again, if people just keep an eye on Facebook through our Facebook page, uh, we'll keep them updated through that. And uh, in closing, now, 
recently I had uh, I had taught on some of this material from Joe based uh, on some of the material you have as well and some other uh, resources that I have. And I basically lay, lay out cases when I do this stuff. I, I basically say, here's here's what's in the scripture. Here's what it says. Tell me what I need to see. And, you know, I let people work through their own stuff. Um, I have people where they will, I will present dozens of pieces of evidence like we're doing today of why this is not the case. And yet people walk away and say, oh yeah, I'm still Job. God's in control. And I'm like, did you not get any of this? <laughs> so my question for you in closing is, is that what kind of response are you getting from people? There's a hot button topic. This is a you know, big can of worms you're breaking open here. So what kind of responses are you getting from this? Is Are people kind of seeing things in a different way? Are they staying to their guns? How is, how is the reaction to all this? For the most part, a lot of people have come across and said, you know what, I now understand what really happened. It's given me a whole different view of God. It's given me a whole different view of the book of Job. And and these are positive responses. For the most part, it's really helping, let's say, to turn people's lives right side up. It's helping them to understand what really happened, why it happened, and how we're supposed to apply it to our lives today. So people are being set free, for the most part, by how God is using understanding the book of Job. Definitely. And, and you know, there, there's always going to be the ones that are afraid to question for like the reasons we said earlier. There are still the unteachable that just want, they just want a mean, angry God because it justifies what they want. And uh, it's unfortunate. It, it truly is. So, uh, listeners, understanding the book of Job, I, I implore you, grab a copy of this book, hear what this guy has to say. Okay, just hear him out, hear the case. And the, the thing that I tell people is, is that you have to have all the information to make the informed decision and make a good decision. If you walk away from this believing exactly what you believe now, totally cool. But hear the full story before you make the choice and before you settle on something. Because you may get a revelation that cracks open something brand new, and uh, now you got a whole new set of things on your hands. So I encourage you, Understanding the Book of Job, Tom Tompkins is the author who's been joining us today. Tom, it has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for being here today. And uh, uh, in the future, when you do your next book and you have more material, I'd like to have you visit with us again. You could share some more. And as we're wrapping up today, final word is yours. Take us out. Well, first of all, Millie, I want to thank you for the opportunity to do this. It has been a privilege and a pleasure. But what I would like to leave all the listeners with is this. If you are tired of struggling and suffering, no matter what you believe, I want to encourage you to do this. Get in a quiet place where there's no distractions and simply say this. Holy Spirit is what I believe about the way God works and why I am dealing with such dire circumstances correct. If it's not, show me how to change my thinking.